Anderson. I am the co-dean of Rutgers Law School in the Camden location, and this is The Power of Attorney. I am here today with Jay Austin, who is relatively new to the Rutgers Law family, so maybe we can poke a little bit and see what you think about us as a community. Um, But Jay's role here at the institution is that he is the Senior Associate Dean of Enrollment Management and Financial Aid, which is a very long title. And so most people would just think of you as the Dean of Admissions, right? (laughs) That's the easiest way to think about the work that you do here. So obviously I want to talk about Rutgers Law and I want to talk about, you know, what you do here and all of that fun stuff. But I also like to ask people what I call their origin stories. Mm. So how is it that you've ended Mm. up with this particular career? So if you don't mind going backwards a little bit and sort of walking us through how you decided that law school admissions is where you wanted to spend your life. Great question. Happy to be here, Kim, and happy to be part of this conversation. You know, it's a very fascinating question because as long as I've been in the work of law school admissions, I've been advising prospective students about personal statements, right, and submitting their personal statement, what they should talk about and write about. And I actually like to say that my life and my journey to law school admissions is fodder for a personal statement. So I was a pre-med student working at Columbia and thinking very seriously about medical school, of course, and had a part-time job as a work-study student working at Columbia Law School. And, you know, when I say one thing led to another, the then dean of admissions and even the dean of the law school back then, uh, because there were very few people of color working in Columbia Law School, so I stood out pretty well in many (laughs) ways, and so people really knew me and knew of me. And so as I got to the point where I was really thinking, I took the MCATs and I'm stressing about medical school and everything, both the dean of the admissions and the dean of the law school said, you know, you've been great being a work-study student for these last few years, you know, there is no science to the work of admissions. It's more of an art. And we would love you if you could stay and be a full-time person. You know, it's New York City, it's the late 70s, I'm a starving student living on the Lower East Side in a walk-up apartment in Little Italy. So a full-time job with benefits was a really important thing. And plus, I'd now spent so many years on Columbia's campus, it felt like home. And I love the place. I mean, it's absolutely a wonderful place in terms of the people, the work, and other things. And so, you know, as I say, so I am one of those people who fell into law school admissions. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that I was making it a a career path. Got it. And you came to Columbia from Newark, which is where That's right. I grew up, I grew up, I was from Newark, New Jersey. I grew up in Newark, New Jersey and uh, actually got into Rutgers uh, as an undergrad. And, you know, it was very interesting. I mean, it's a combination. I was a first, I'm a first generation, so I couldn't, got, I couldn't really turn to my parents for a lot of the conversation. My father's a chauffeur, and my mother worked in a, a factory in Harrison, New Jersey. I did have some cousins, and an older brother had gone to college, but again, they were really kind of removed in, in terms of our age and what experiences were. And so I had a couple of friends who lived in New York City, and they said, you should come to New York City, either go to Columbia or NYU. And at that point, because I would be paying for my own tuition, Columbia was actually $9 cheaper a credit uh, than okay. NYU was. And so that's how I decided to end up at Columbia, because it seemed more affordable for me o- over the long term. Did you go to public high school in, in Newark? I did go to public high school. I was in Newark. At a, I grew up in Newark in a very interesting time that I attended 
Um, I don't know how many high schools there were back then, maybe seven or eight, but there was only two high schools that were predominantly white in the city of Newark. Mm. Uh, and my parents, again, thinking that education would be crucial for both my younger brother and I, decided that we would be bused, right? Because this, this is a point in our society where there was such a thing as voluntary busing. Right. And so this is before forced busing and voluntary busing. So this is all before the Newark Rebellion and my parents decided that we were going to take two buses, travel well over an hour in the city of Newark each day to go to what was then a, one of the better a public, both public elementary schools and then high schools as well. So my high school at the time I started, there was one other black person at my high school in the city of Newark. How many uh, students were there? I'd say probably 1,200. It was pretty large. And it's interesting because this friend, we are still friends now all these decades later because the way it worked, they put everyone, both boys and girls, in the gymnasium and said, look around, pick a locker partner. Right? And I didn't know anyone. Right? I'm from the other side of town. I'm here. And we, I spied each other across the room, another young black woman. And we've been friends ever since. Wow. So over 60, almost 60 years. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, what an incredible experience to have shared, though. Yeah. Right? So you're like, talking about the journey, the path, right? So, you know, for me, that's why it's so critical as I think about the experiences of applicants who apply to the law schools, right? And having, having, the experience of so many different lenses, and it's not just important for me as I consider them as applicants and represent the law schools that I work with. Also, how can I impart some of the importance of the different lenses that people have and experiences to my admissions committee colleagues, my staff members, and you know, just the institution as a whole, because those are the things that really matter the most. Yeah, and I think I, you know when I sort of think about things that we think are important here at Rutgers Law and access, and you know, making sure that folks who are first gen have an opportunity to attend law school and to be comfortable here and to be successful here. It seems to me that one of the things is helpful. That's helpful is to have somebody mm. around who has a sense of that experience, right? right? I mean, even the experience of doing an application right. for college or doing an application for law school when other people in your family haven't had to do that, right? And sort of thinking about how you climb that, how you climb that hill when other people are already at the top of it. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in so many ways I embody the work that I've done for decades. And I know we'll get to this later, but, you know, some one of the, you know, what drew me to Rutgers and just thinking about the institutions that I've worked with over the years and whether they've been private elite schools or, you know, large public institutions, you know, the, the question of access has always been critical to me and how I can have some impact on that process in some real meaningful ways. You know, I, we get there's so many stories and admissions, so many narratives over the decades, and there's been numerous times where I've had to stop staff in their track and just say, you can't think like that because you're not honoring this person's experiences, mm. and they're real, mm -hmm. and they have to step back for a minute because you know, I mean, many of us have you know are in these privileged positions now, and it's easy to forget how privileged we are when you have privilege. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You, you, it's very easy to become blind to it, I think, in lots of ways. And it also becomes really difficult for people when you disrupt mm. that, mm -hmm. you know, people who sort of think of themselves as moving through the world in this very sort of liberal and progressive way. It can be really difficult to have somebody say, well, let's actually, maybe let's look at the numbers, right? right? right. <laughs> or, or let's look at the data right. and let's right. talk about whether we're living right. the principles that we right. say that, that we espouse. 
All right, so let's go back to Columbia. And full disclosure, I graduated right. from Columbia Law School. And you were there, and you were in the admissions office. I assume one of the younger, younger if not the youngest people working in the admissions office at the time and sort of learning the ropes. Yeah, you know, and I learned them really well. Like I said, you know, I think people who meet me and know me are always surprised when I tell them my role models have been and my biggest supporters have been two middle-aged white men, Mm. right? (laughs) And, uh, you know, and I, I say that because I like telling students and anyone that, you know, your role model doesn't always have to look like you. Absolutely. And that's a really tough one for lots of people to digest. Um, And I think for me, you know, I was able to bond again. I mean, these are the days I think about who were in the halls at Columbia back then. You know, uh, Kellis Parker was the first African-American tenured faculty, you know. Kellis taught me contracts. Right. So he was one of the, I mean, he was it, right? I mean, they were it. Him and talking about diversity on the faculty at Columbia Law School. If If you take away some of the you know, whether someone was, you know, their religion, perhaps, uh, Kellis and Ruth Bader Ginsburg for a short period was it. And so, you know, so I just recall walking down the halls there and it gave me a sense of pride and power and that I knew I could execute it on some way on behalf of some, some students and even the people that I met there. So the fact that there weren't people who looked like me per se, but there were a lot of people who respected me immensely for the commitment to the work and I think you know and I also was able to hire a few people who are still there working in admissions because I got to the point where I was the kind of the manager of it I worked my way up from being just the work study in the back room to where I was now kind of managing the overall operations of the process and so that really gave me a sense of you know how does all this work and at the same time how does opportunity or lack of opportunity factor into either making it succeed for people really well or not making it work? Right, right. So let's talk a little bit about the admissions process. So, you know, admissions, I think, sort of on any level, whether it's for college or for for graduate school, can often feel like this black box to students, right? You sort of fill out the application. Of course, I'm still thinking about when I was applying. So you really were like writing out, you know, typing out the application. Yeah. You know, you do that and then it goes off and somebody does something with it. You hope that somebody actually reads the whole thing and then you either get accepted or waitlisted or rejected. And I think that lots of people would love to know some of what happens in between. I just turned in my application and I got notification of of whether I'm going to be able to attend this school or not. So without spilling any very particular secrets, I wouldn't ask for that. (laughs) Yeah, I would love to just sort of walk through, you know, what happens when somebody You know, that's a a great question. And it is the, you know, it, it is a little mysterious, right, in so many ways for people. And it even, it's even more mysterious the further removed you are from being able to have opportunity to have been in that position before right if you're a first gen if you've only applied to a certain range of schools I mean there's just it's, it gets even more uh, it creates a more level of discomfort right and so I think it's really important that you know people in my position exercise some value judgments when they're talking to people but you know I, for a long time they're not so much now but when I was younger if I went to parties, you know, social functions with friends and people in every way, so what do you do? I would either deny what I did or I would be flippant and say, I'm in the business of rejection. Oh. 
Oh, right? Ouch. I mean, because the truth is far <laughs> more people get rejected than get admitted. And that really shuts down the conversation. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a great opening line because then it gets into that, well, why do people get rejected, mm -hmm. right? And maybe that's what we should look at as opposed to why do people get in? Mm. Uh, because I think on some level, everyone has a level of talent that would be a good fit for that particular institution. Some of it is just preparation, right? I call it a little preparation and luck. Preparation in a sense that making yourself the best possible candidate you can be, regardless of the school or the academic program you're applying to. And then some of it is a little bit of luck. Luck in the timing, luck in who reads your file that day, luck in how many people have applied to the similar program. I mean, I hate to drill down that, you know, our lives, the, the trajectory of our lives depends on some level in luck. But we also know the trajectory of our lives depends some level on the, the site and time of your birth, right? And the family you're born into. So you're lucky, you're lucky on some level. So bringing joy to people, that's why I, you know, I've always been the person who said, your acceptance letter, regardless of what it is, should be something that you want to hang on the wall that you want to hang on to because it is a it's a huge moment in people's lives being being admitted into any program particularly one that can change not just your life the life of your family the life of the community that you may serve and you know I see which is why I probably stayed in legal education all these years because it's such a powerful tool Absolutely. that you know that people often overlook I think if for me again just going back to the city of Newark and growing up I have no doubt that if I had had the right a different kind of mentor I probably would have ended up in law school Mm. But I, I, I've, I've been on this incredible professional track. And I say that because, so our first experience growing up in Newark with an attorney, so my brother, younger brother, was a Boy Scout. Very few Boy Scout troops in the city of Newark in the late 60s. He was in one. And he was all about the badges, all about his pocket knife, the whole bit. Carried his pocket knife accidentally to school. Locker search. Oh. Pocket knife was found. He, he was arrested as a teenager. And this is, you know, again before a lot of what we know about the criminal justice system and everything right. else. And so my poor parents, you know, were, I just remember coming home from school, my mother being hysterical, and my parents finding a lawyer in, in our neighborhood in Newark. I'm not even sure, I'm sure it was some black solo practitioner who lived in our neighborhood yeah. to go navigate this place for my, my brother. But so an attorney, a lawyer, had a really powerful image in our neighborhood because we were kind of, what we call a good family, right? My mm. parents both work. I had two parents. We all went to school, public school. We had a car. I mean, you name it, we took vacations. I mean, I, you know, there were lots of neighbors who didn't have those experiences. But having that, that attorney who was able to undo the damage of having a pocket knife would have meant for my younger brother was huge. Right. It was huge. Right. And, you know, I mean, the other thing that you always think about when you hear a story like that is would the school have reacted the same way if it had been a white child, right? I mean, that's the thing I think that's always really challenging when you're raising little brown kids in America, you know, getting them to understand that the things that happen to your white friends are not necessarily the things that will right. happen to you and you have to be prepared for those experiences. And you know, that's a great point because this was at the white school and you're right. I don't think now looking back, I don't think we thought about that then. Uh -huh. That like, okay, it's like, is he like, why was his locker searched? There's right. hundreds of <laughs> lockers, all white students. And you know, my brother is one of the few black students at the um, elementary school, but you're right. 
Yeah. I have no doubt that race played a factor into that locker search that day. Right. And the fact that there was, you know, a black lawyer in your neighborhood, which, you know, again, has those racial implications of if you're a black solo practitioner, where are you going to get your clients? Right. Right. I mean, that's where you're that's where you're going to get the folks who are willing who are willing to hire you and who trust you as an attorney. So it is this sort of system that definitely right. feeds on itself. And you know what? I bet you was a Rutgers grad. Yeah. <laughs> we'll right. I'm sitting in New York. Yeah, right? right. I have that's no right. doubt. Right. I, I and I don't have a way of kind of going back and finding out who was that person. But right. now that I think about it. We were just a few blocks from Rutgers Law School and folks stayed in the community. So, yeah, yeah. well, that, yeah. that is definitely yeah. the story we're going to tell. Yeah. Right. Right. So let's stay with Newark a little bit, and then I want to talk more about the sort of admissions world and the admissions life. And the reason why I want to talk about Newark a little bit is you were in Newark in the 70s, growing up in Newark. You've been at a number of different law schools and public institutions, and now you're back. You're back in Newark all of these years later. And I would love just to hear your impression of the city now versus the city that you grew up in. Yeah, and, and, and I also say I know a little bit about Camden because my mother's oldest brother lived in Philadelphia. And so we drove to Camden, through Camden, a lot to mm-hmm. go visit him during those years, too. And so Camden also feels familiar to me in a different kind of way as well. You know, I mean, I'll be honest, and I think this is I'm, I'm perfectly fine being as candid as possible here. It's been difficult to be in the city of Newark. Interesting. Um, and difficult because... The level of poverty that was, existed when I was growing up within the black community still exists. Mm. Uh, and even though these wonderful anchor institutions, including you know, the expansion of Rutgers, Audible is headquartered there now, Panasonic is there as well, Prudential Center, you know, the New Jersey Devils play hockey there. There's all, Prudential, which is, has always been there. That's where my first job was, Prudential Insurance Company, you know, one of the oldest insur- still existing insurance companies in, the, in America. That's a ginormous financial services provider at this point. They're all still there. And, you know, as I walk the city and, you know, I, I struggle with, am I part of the new problem? Or am I there to help the city continue to grow? And I say Mm. part of the problem because I'm living in a development building that's downtown Newark, that's part of the development that has displaced a lot of the community. I shop at Whole Foods. There's right. a, you know, there's a Whole Foods downtown Newark. When I was growing up there, there was no supermarket 20 miles within the city area, right? right? But then there's a part of me that thinks, okay, I'm, I'm here. And I'm actually serving as a reminder to people what Newark was like then, where it is now. So even with the students that I encounter, the faculty, you know, my neighbors, um, I haven't met many people from my generation who have either stayed, mm-hmm. returned, mm-hmm. black people in my generation, who have returned to the city. And so I offer this, this viewpoint of the city that often gives people pause mm. because they see it now as this, this city that is on the rise. Mm-hmm. It's a bedroom community of New York City with all the development and you know, kind of that northeast 
you know, what, what had been Manhattan and Brooklyn and trickled down to Jersey City and Hoboken. Now it's in, in Newark, right? And I know Newark and many of the faculty on the, on the Newark campus have worked hard about trying to document how not to gentrify the city anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And so I love, having, I love having these conversations with people because I am a fourth generation Newarker. Mm -hmm. And so I love having these conversations with people. I've also found myself giving far more money away to people on the streets than I have anywhere else in the country. And, you know, collecting toiletries to take to some of the shelters and some coats and things, and even foregoing some of the drives for, for uh, supplies, personal, or, I mean, personal supplies, clothing that I've seen elsewhere that I've participated in, in the past, saving them for people in Newark mm -hmm. uh, and giving them to people in Newark because there's just a level of poverty that just exists, which is why I think, you know, and we'll get to the law school, which is why I think, and even in Canada, which is why if you're going to go to law school, why not go to places that exist like Rutgers? You know, mm -hmm. uh, it puts you really in the trenches of what service means to a communities in need. Absolutely. One of the things that I find both exciting and challenging about both of our Rutgers locations is that they are locations that are both in the city and of the city. Correct. You know, that we're deeply engaged with, you know, the, the politics of our cities. We're deeply engaged with the incredible work that folks are doing in both Newark and Camden to you know protect these vibrant communities mostly black and brown communities that have been here ever since industry left right, <laughs> right? right and so and i think both of the both of the campuses but particularly the law schools play a really vital role in thinking about what can these cities become and what do we want these cities to become going forward. Right. So let's go back to talking about law school and talking about the admissions process. So you've been in law school admissions for quite some time. And if you're in any kind of industry over decades, you see things mm. and you see things change and, and transform. So let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, when you think about you know, being a work-study student, you know, working in the Columbia admissions office to now in 2020 working at Rutgers Law School. What's changed about law school yeah, admissions? I mean, there, there's lots of things that have changed, but here's the biggest thing that I think has changed is that people today have a greater willingness to share their life stories oh. in ways that people never talked about in the past. Because I think it's a willingness or an expectation? Or no, both? I think it's a willingness. Okay. I think it's a level of safety. I think it's a level of where we are as a society and people being open, because I'm sure 40 years ago, people had alcohol issues and abuse in their families and you know mental health questions and access to food, all the things that people today are willing to talk about in their narratives and how they impacted their lives. And I think back then, one, it would have been unthought of, you know, for someone to talk about growing up in an alcoholic family mm -hmm. situation, right? Mm -hmm. And how that impacted their life, their ability to be successful as a student. I have no doubt that some students who were differently abled, who realized that they wouldn't be able to get up the stairs, and there weren't any elevators in the building, so I won't even think about going to law school. I really want mm -hmm. to, but I can't because mm -hmm. how would I even get in the building, right? And right. so I think there was just just things to, that happened back then that today we take for granted when we look at someone's narrative about where they are and even almost become jaded, which mm -hmm. is, again, which is mm -hmm. I try to impart 
that to people who are involved in admissions, you know, like, oh, I read, how many more stories can you read about the Me Too movement or someone, uh-huh. yeah, you know, this is that person's story. Right. So, you know, please don't have that attitude as, you, as you're considering this person. This is, they're being authentic, they're being real. And I think that's, that's probably the biggest thing that I've seen is that it's much more willing for us to be open about how under-resourced schools, how, you know, under employed parents, you know, have impacted our lives. I think there was a sense that people didn't want to expose themselves for fear. And, you know, and I understood. I mean, right. I understood. Right. That's great. That's not that's not a what thing that I would thought, have thought mm-hmm, about. And yet, mm-hmm. yet that makes perfect sense to me. And particularly because for lots of folks, those those life experiences are what push them toward law school. Sure. So to not be able to talk about them or to feel like, you know, that those things are shrouded in shame actually makes it harder for you to be your authentic self when you're looking to, to do your law school application. The volume of applications has also been sort of, you know, you, you, kind of, you've been through some yeah, right. <laughs> some shifts in that sense yeah, that's, too. Yeah, that's really, that's a, that's a great question because you're right. And I think some of it is, you know, just again, kind of the, well, one, probably the biggest, another big shifts, U.S. news didn't exist. Mm. Um, and how, the influence of the rankings oh um, had, right. had, you know, they really came into existence in the mid 80s and that really changed the dynamics of lots of educational institutions. So I, I think that's one. Also, the number of law schools, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the number of law schools has grown. Um, you know, far fewer law schools a decade ago. And then also access for people made made a huge difference. And I think those have been big shifts. But the volume has shifted, right? I mean, I think as people think about, you know, not just law as a professional degree, but what other professional degrees... Uh, you know, I remember some of the recession years of the recession. You know, people weren't flocking to be to business schools. They were thinking about law school, right? You know, typically when there's a recession, people apply to school, right? Because mm-hmm. they're either getting laid off, you know, underemployed, and so they think about graduate and professional school. I did a great chart charting law school applications from the '60s until 2018 versus what was happening in our society, you know, everything from wars, um, Hmm. oil, you know, embargoes, Watergate, you know, various things, and television shows, right? You think of L.A. Law, um, you think of, you know, Ally McBeal, you think of some of those things, and it's fascinating to see the ebbs and flow of the law school applicant pool based on what was happening out there in society. So I, I, I use that quite often at some of my faculty meetings at other schools to just really, you know, let people see, you know, the cyclic nature of this, um, but also how impactful TV show can be. Right. 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 Yeah, I, I remember Law and Order. Yeah, right. Practice. Right. One of the other things that I think has consistently changed just a wide range of industries is technology mm-hmm. and the ability to access data. And it strikes me that that's certainly something we've seen in the world of admissions is just the ability to collect all of this information about people, some of which is, you know, in their personal statement, but some of which is just data, right, that you can put together, which I think is really amazing. So how have data and technology become a much deeper part of the admissions process? 
you know, my, my ability to access data is just extraordinary, right? And, and people who are in my positions, so much so that every time I fill out something and I see, you know, the small print there, it's like, okay, what am I signing my right. life away to? <laughs> but that's what you do as a law school applicant, right? No matter where you're applying, you tick off that little box, you give us permission to have your data. Mm -hmm. And being mindful that we will be respectful and honor the, you know, FERPA laws, you know, the Family Rights, Family Educational Right to Privacy Act and others that protect your, your data. But it's extraordinary because not only does it give me and give us data about you, but it gives us data about you in this enormous national pool. And when I say national data, I, I just don't mean U.S. data because there's, you know, law schools throughout the, the world, you know, particularly Australia, Puerto Rico, Canada, that also have access to similar data systems, too. And so we see this, this information. And so the good thing is, and this is where data can be really helpful, quantitative data I think is really helpful, is that it does permit us to determine, you know, who you are you know, and the pool that you sit in and how you stack up vis-a-vis -vis lots of other people, which may actually be helpful, right, on some level. You know, if you went to a school that typically doesn't send a lot of people to law, legal education, had a difficult major, you know, we see that and we could say, wow, you know, this person is kind of an outlier and a good outlier, right? I've never seen this, law, this undergrad school before, but didn't they do terrific there, mm -hmm. right? On the other hand, data can also be a way to exclude people, mm -hmm. and that can be problematic. And I think you see it more so in highly selective programs than you do in programs that just have open access. And people will be denied um, often because of how their profile, their data, is viewed as having less value than someone who has stronger data points. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's, there's both a useful tool in data, but when it's used in, in an inappropriate way or not with best practices, it's a really dangerous tool. Absolutely. Which I think can bring us back to talking about rankings. Mm. So, you know, like me, conversations about rankings, I'm sure, are not your favorite conversations to have, but I think it is useful to talk about the impact that U.S. News and World Report has had on law schools and on the law school admissions process. So as somebody who, again, has been in this game for a very long time, what's your, what's your perception of what U.S. News has done? Uh, you know, I hate the rankings, and mm -hmm. I say that as someone, as a personal opinion and not a professional one, because I, I do have very strong personal opinions about several things. Um, the fact that we have been captured as an industry, legal education industry, by one source of subjective information is so problematic. But I also understand the enormous institutional pressure that people in your position, deans, provosts, um, you know, development people, faculty appointments committee, in addition to admissions, face when we have to talk about the rankings and the value of it. Because I think all of us would love to have, not have to rank steer, right? Mm -hmm. Rank steer means, you know, is when you develop initiatives, policies, and practices to try to maximize your opportunity in the rankings. And lots of schools have been faced with 
doing that practices and, and it's wrong. But you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of deans at a lot of law schools all over the country, and I can't say that I've, I've, I've ever met a dean who hasn't agonized. Mm about the rankings and the impact on it and in very private settings you know they may have a very public opinion about it because you almost have to but then in private closed doors you know they put their head on the table and they literally are you know uh, just crushed I mean you know um, people have lost their jobs yeah. over rankings deans admissions professionals people have lost their jobs over the outcome of the rankings so the fact that it's that powerful and increasingly growing, increasingly growing in power is really problematic. But there's been no strategic method or strategic plan to disrupt right. that particular one. And people have tried, you know, mm -hmm. well-intentioned people have tried over the decades. It's still to no avail, it exists. And so I think now what has become the th rule of thumb is that we have to live with it and how do we live with it and still stay true to our values, our mission, our core mission, the students that we serve, the alumni, the graduates that we put out there, but knowing it's, it's not going to go away. Right, absolutely. And certainly I don't think that you can run a good institution if you're, you just live and die by the rankings, right? There's too much that goes into this and there are too many people involved for that to be the way, you know, for that to be what drives all the decisions that you make. It just wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, I say that's why it's so important, I think, in, which is why admissions is, it should be such a labor-intensive enterprise because it's very easy for a prospective student and admitted students to look at the rankings and say, well, I'm going there. That's the higher-ranked school. And I tell people, I said, you know, you have to find the place that you're going to survive and thrive at. And that may not be the school that is incredibly ranked um, very high, or it may be. And so let's, let's push back for a minute. But, it, you know, the easy answer that often people give is go to the highest-ranked school. Mm -hmm. Right, we hear that over and over, and you know, you hear from your family, you hear from your friends, you may hear from your your mentor, your advisor, whatever. And for some people, that still may be true. Right. But I think for the vast majority of people, they they need to think more broadly about where will they be most successful. Right, and I certainly think as law school has become increasingly expensive, that you know, go to the highest ranked school has become a little less entrenched than it was before. I do want to get your, your take on, you know, we said before there are a lot of law schools out there now. You know, if you're a student who is interested in going to a law school, what's the advice you give them in terms of figuring out what is that place where you're going to thrive and you're going to be able to do well, not just sort of grade-wise, but just as a, as a person? Yeah, I know, you know, I'm always amazed when I meet a student who starts law school in the fall and says, well, I didn't visit the law school before now. I just, I'm here. And it's like, really? Would you make a major purchase in your life without test driving it? Okay, you know, probably not. And so I think it's, it's, it's critical that students visit the schools. Mm -hmm. And I even tell people uh, to put, us, put, put our feet to the fire. Don't just visit on the day that we have our admitted students events. I challenge you to come by just like on a regular Tuesday yeah. and see <laughs> how you're treated. Up. That's right, and see how you're treated because that says a great deal about the institution, right? Because remember, I think that you know we're, we're, we're looking at students to, to come to law schools who will develop problem-solving skills, be creative, and develop the power of persuasion. And I would hope that if they walked into an admissions office, one, we'd be creative. You're here. What can we do for you? Two, we're going to solve the problem because you are here. And three, 
I'm going to sit and talk with you and explain to you why this is a great place for you, even though it's not the, the typical day, right? And so the same way we want our students to come and learn these skill set, I think the offices need to do that. So definitely visit the schools and get a sense, visit multiple schools and visit the sense, sense um, you know, where does, it, where does it feel right for you? Right. And it's also such a great idea to talk to current right. students. Right, and get a sense of what their experience has been, what's worked for them, what hasn't right. worked for them, and what it, you know what it feels like in the institution. Because it might be that a particularly hard charging place works really well for some students and works really poorly for other students, and that's stuff that you can't necessarily figure out without really interacting. Right, and that you know it's important about the student conversation. And I actually tell our students, and I know not everyone says this, I tell students, current students, when they talk to admitted students, to be candid and honest. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are candid and honest, that says more to me about your institution than it does if you're just making it sugary sweet, right? Because if you're willing to have the hard conversations, even in a place where, you know, they aren't always welcome, that says a lot to me. And so, you know, even with our students now who will be involved with our post-acceptance activities, I've given them that charge. You know, and they're like, really? And I said, yes, because people need to know, and I think they will appreciate you being honest than they will you just, you know, kind of blowing smoke right. towards them. Right. So I'm going to ask a very specific question now, just because I think this is a thing that, to the extent that someone is listening to this and is interested in applying to Rutgers Law School, this is a question that folks might have, which is when you fill out the application, you can choose a particular location, say you have a preference for Camden or you have a preference um, for Newark, or say that you have no preference at all. And I think people might think that they're gaming the system sometimes and how they, they make that selection. So can you just tell folks, like, what, what does it mean when you check off one of those boxes? Yeah, well, it means a little bit to us, especially if you indicate a preference, because we at least then assume that you are familiar on some level with the campus location. And that could be a plus, right? And again, because again, we're going for the fit thing, because you know, even you know, this unified law school, there are some unique differences, and just in terms of how the buildings feel, right? The physical plants are different, and so I think that you know, being able to identify because you have preference one campus is probably a good thing and to your advantage. But remember, regardless of whether you preference a campus or indicate no preference, we don't hold you to that until the beginning of school. So people do switch, right, for some personal reasons, uh, and do that throughout the, the the summer and even you know before classes begin. What I find most interesting are the people who select no preference mm -hmm. because I think it, it probably says two things. One, they just don't know, mm -hmm. right? And I see that from a lot of out-of-towners, mm -hmm. um, which is completely fine. You know, if you're if you're in Tennessee or Alabama or Virginia or you know Texas or California. Maybe you've never even been to New Jersey. So you maybe not literally have no preference. And that's, and that's understandable. And we respect that. And then we'll work hard with you to kind of help you make the best informed decision for yourself, right? Because we really do try to do that. But I think it, you know, the ability, which is why it's important this year as we do our admitted students events, that they are on different days so that we will have people who have opportunity to go to both campuses, which I think is a far better way to manage it than have competing events. You know, there's no escaping the labor intensiveness of admissions, and that's part of it. So being able to put on these events that enables people to really experience, you know, walking towards the dorm, you know, those are going to be part of our events that day, as well as the whole host of other, really other terrific uh, things. Mm -hmm. So certainly one of the other things that has changed drastically 
over the years is how much it costs to go to law school. And I've done a number of these podcasts with folks who are alums who will say things like, oh, it was $500 a semester when I went here. It is no longer $500 a semester. And certainly we're a better deal than a lot of other law schools, but it's still expensive. It's a really expensive endeavor to get a law degree. So what's the conversation that you have with students who are interested in becoming lawyers and interested in going to law school about how to make good financial decisions Mm -hmm. as you are walking into this experience, right? You don't want to graduate with basically a mortgage already. You know, I find that to be probably one of the more difficult conversations that we have both with the student and even with their family, Mm -hmm. right? Because many of them begin to have, this is where often family members, whether they're parents, partners, spouses, whatever, get involved because they want to know the the financing of the law school because it will have some impact perhaps on the rest of the family on some level. You know, the first thing that I I think it's really important to tell people is that they need to do their own self-check on their credit history, right? And see, get a sense of where they are with their debt, just personal debt, where they are with their FICO scores, because all those will matter. As we know, you know, we we know FICO scores matter for a whole, whole, you know, the interest rates you'll pay for your car loan, you know, your insurance, I mean, lots of other things that will be impact. But it also may be, uh, it it may matter in terms of your ability to successfully finance law school. Because at this point, you know, with the sheer cost of law school, and I'd like to come back to, you know, how Rutgers really does provide a level, a level of affordability that leads to mobility that is unlike other schools in the country, because I think that's really crucial. So as you look about financing it, sure, absolutely always look for institutional aid, whether it's merit or need-based aid from the school. And then I also would suggest looking for outside scholarships. You know, there's an enormous amount of outside scholarships. Bar Association, you know, uh, some of the big law firms, some of the, the national legal partners, the ABA, yeah. some of the consortiums out there. I'm amazed sometimes by how much money is left on the, table. on the table. Yes, yeah. right, and so there's an enormous And even of money small sums of money. I mean, when, when you find out how much a casebook costs, getting a $1,000 scholarship right. can right. be really helpful. That's right, absolutely. And then looking at, you know, most students will take out the federal loan program, right? Go use a federal loan. Uh, and then if you're forced to use a private loan, because law school doesn't have the same level of of available financial aid that you'll find at the undergrad. There's no Pell Grants in law school. There's no parental plus loans, right? And so you are looking at one because you are a graduate student who's considered independent for aid purposes. So it's important to think about how you're going to finance legal education. And so that may mean as you think about where you're applying to, you know, um, how much money you can save in advance of law school become critical part of the the equation that's the economics of law school. That's why I think, you know, looking at Rutgers, you know, hats off to leadership at both the university, at the law schools, who've been able to maintain the cost of the education in ways that, you know, has skyrocketed other state institutions. But it, it speaks, and I, I tell students all the time, you know, it's like, this is what, when you're in law school, you know, you shouldn't buy a Frappuccino every day. You know, if you go to Starbucks <laughs> and you're spending six bucks on a, you know, a grande something or other, bring your, you know, add that up per month. That's a lot of money. Make a thermos. Use the coffee machine in the building. I mean, just one of my best and most favorite sayings, remember, 
you don't want to live like a lawyer in law school because then when you are out of law school, you will live like a student, <laughs> you know, and you'll be eating ramen noodles working at the firm mm -hmm. because you didn't manage your debt while you're in law school. And so that usually is enough to kind of close the deal to make them think more seriously about financing it. Absolutely. One of the other things that we have been working on increasing, just in terms of what I think is about access, is our BA, JD programs. Mm. And not just the ones that allows your typical undergraduate student to graduate from undergrad in three years and then get the law degree in three years, so make it six years instead of seven, which I think you know has its own sort of benefits. But also, I love the fact that we are reaching out to institutions that are, you know, mostly focused on adult learners or, you know, people who are coming back to school and saying to those people, right, a law degree is not out of your reach. A law degree is not just for, you know, 22-year-olds. Right. You can be 42 or 52, maybe somebody who comes back to law school. So I, I just wanted to ask you to sort of talk a little bit about, you know, what, what do you think about those kinds of BAJD programs and what they sort of provide in terms of the institution, but also what they provide to students who take advantage of them. Really powerful. You know, last week I had the chance to uh, spend a Saturday at one of our newest partners, and that's one of the adult local adult schools here in the greater Philadelphia area. And I came away with just a high. There are about 30 students in the room, all older, all working, mostly working women um, who are in this, this program now. And uh, one, they were just thrilled that I was, that we would take the time to even come and, and spend a Saturday with them. And I felt that way that they took the time to come on a Saturday. So for me, being able to have those opportunities with the BAJD programs that you've worked hard to develop with schools that aren't in the orbit of the elite schools is just really more impactful. And so I thank you for doing that. That doesn't mean that we also don't see a wide range of BAJD sure. students, but you know, I can feel the difference. It's palatable in terms of how these these students I've heard so from so many in the three day, you know, the week that I was there. And even just being grateful because it and many of them came up to me and said, you know, I would have never thought this was possible. Ah, uh, right. Right? I mean, Rutgers is across the bridge. I, I've always wanted to go to law school, but I didn't think I had the ability to go or the tools to even apply. And you've been here today, and now I like have a person, I have a contact, you know, who's inviting me and welcoming me. And I'm just, it was, I, I, I left like floating on air. The more we develop those kind of partnerships, HBCUs, some of the community colleges, some of the Hispanic-serving institutions, and I think for all of us who are deeply committed to the work, it's, it's being able to serve the communities in different ways. Absolutely. Well, I'll just say, if you ever decide that you want to go ahead and get that law degree, uh -huh. I'm pretty sure you would it's get it. It's funny you say that. I, I've been thinking, it's like, could I do this? Could I work during the day and do that evening? I probably could, right. It's just an option. I thank you. I just want to make sure that, that it's out thank there. You. Well, thank you so much for taking so much time today to talk to me, Jay. It was really wonderful. And, you know, I've said this before, and I've said it publicly and privately, and I'll say it again. You've just been a game changer mm. institutionally, and we are just absolutely thrilled to have you here. Thank you, Kim. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. This is a, this is a great way to uh, have a capstone moment in my career, and I'm really delighted to be here. Excellent. Thank Power of Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School. With two locations, minutes from Philadelphia and New York City, Rutgers Law offers the prestige and reputation of a large, nationally known university with a personal small campus experience. 
Learn more by visiting law.rutgers.edu.